This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, forward, prohibited by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hello, Mets fans. Welcome to episode 307 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore. Thank you for joining us this week. We have a bit of a stuffed show. It's a lot of great stuff. We welcome back two Amazing Avenue alums to be a part of the show, and uh, we generally have a really good time. Unfortunately, you won't be hearing me for most of this show. Um, Chris and I had recorded a segment with Eno Saris, which you're going to hear in a minute, uh, last week, but there was a problem on the recording, and so they had to re-record it, and I'm a little under the weather and a little busy, so I couldn't sit in with them. So, unfortunately, you're not going to be hearing me with Eno, but you're going to hear Chris with Eno, and then after that, you're going to hear Chris with our old pal, Jeffrey Paternostro, as well. So, uh, stay tuned. 
joining us this week on Amazing Avenue Audio. Uh, you know him, longtime Amazing Avenue readers know his work from Amazing Avenue. And since then, he has gone on to have a, a pretty awesome career covering baseball, writing about it. Uh, you've seen him on MLB Network. He, he uh, works at The Athletic. He's out on the West Coast now, so he's not subjected to the Mets torture in, in the same way that, that we all are, or, or he used to be, I guess. But uh, Eno Saris is, is on the show again. So Eno, thanks for coming on. Yeah, anytime for Mason Avenue. Uh, Eric Simon uh, brought me on back in the day. That was one of my first gigs on the, on the heels of starting uh, God Bless Buckner, which was a tiny site that nobody read. But um, <laughs> I was I was very happy to join Amazing Avenue and I always keep an eye out on y'all and uh, always keep an eye on the Mets because they're uh, they've they've proven I think that LOL Mets will never go away. Yeah, at this point, like there <laughs> there are things that people reach for, you know, that you're like yeah. that's not really it. But then there are times that I'm just like, it's back. Yeah, you, I, mean, you, I thought it might be gone for a second when they made it to the to the uh, to the World Series, but then. You know, the whole thing with Matt Harvey arguing his way back into the game, I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Is it back? Yeah. I, I will admit, uh, as I have several times on this podcast, I was fortunate enough to be at that World Series game. Oh, boy. And uh, I was I was chanting in his favor. <laughs> so to the extent that any of us had anything to do with it, I can take like a one out of 45,000th share of the blame <laughs> it was all your fault <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's been it's been quite a ride since then it, it, you know if i in in my time of like having a memory and being a mets fan um and i guess even when i was young i was two in 86 and I, that was a little bit longer period of success you know i mean they, they had that one good season in there where if the wild card were around, they would have made it, um, you know, but that was still a few years of greatness followed by a long period of misery. Uh, so then, you know, having a memory, 99, 2000. Okay, great. 2006 is a one-off. 2015 is a one-off in terms of, you know, postseason play. Um, uh, or and post- each of them sort of, I mean, they just, they just ended painfully. I mean, the, the Wayno curveball to, Beltron is just like I can't I can't unsee that like it's yeah yeah but anyway the yeah. nice thing <laughs> I would say is that I think that I'm feeling different vibes uh from this front office than I haven't had in a while they're definitely more aggressive than ever and um I think that you know part of that aggressiveness was why I put Brody Van Wagenen on my list of potential general managers, uh, as I did. Part of it was that I, I, I saw a guy that would um, maybe come from a different aspect. He's been arguing for players, uh, whereas normally GMs come out of sort of arguing against players in a way. It's sort of, you know, you come out of uh, arbitration hearings, um, you know, internal evaluations where you're, you're, you're trying to sign a free agent, but you're trying to argue the price down. And Brody kind of came from, you know, he's an agent. So he came from this different perspective, which is like a little bit more pro player. um, And I kind of thought he might be more aggressive as he is, um, as he has been. And then, 
He's also the lead guy at CAA, so it's not just that. It's the fact that he's the lead guy at CAA, um, that the, the, the agency who's at, which meant that he was also uh, an organizer and a person that would put uh, people that were smart around him. And, um, you know, I know uh, that there are a few analysts that they've hired that I respect, um, and in particular, uh, Adam Guttridge, the assistant GM, um, comes from an analytics background, started NAFI Analytics, uh, which was consulting multiple teams. Um, you know, so I think uh, the, the, he's brought on some brain power, uh, and they've gone out and gotten the people they wanted to get. And, and um, you know, I heard from somebody in the team, like, it has to work. So this is, <laughs> this is uh, <laughs> coming in guns blazing. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely been a different approach. Um, you know, I think... I certainly was, uh, and then maybe the site was for some period of time. Uh, you know, not that everybody on the site has the same take on everything, uh, but you know, patient with Sandy Alderson and letting that process play out. And you know, it, nobody wanted to see his tenure come to an end the way that it did. Um, but you know, coming off of that and going out and get some, getting somebody fresh and getting somebody who's controversial in, in the baseball world. Um, you know, Mets Twitter turned into conflict of interest Twitter <laughs> very yeah, quickly. Right. And uh, he has gotten former players. I mean, Jed Lowry was one of his guys. Um, was there somebody else? Um, Cano. Yeah. yeah, Cano and Lowry were both uh, his, his clients. But... I don't, you know, conflict of interest. He didn't sign them to deals. He, I mean, he did sign Lowry, I guess. I don't know. Well, what yeah. What do you think matters I mean, to him more? Like rewarding an old client of his or winning this year? Right. Like that's his biggest interest. His biggest interest is winning this year. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no. And it, it, it's, you know, it's something that I think, um, you know, we we may be running something that, kind of takes a look at it and and you know makes an attempt to be objective about it but yeah i would think he cares more about his success than you know the the financial success of his former clients yeah. at, at this point <laughs> i hope not, but not in the business of giving jed lowry a, a payout um but uh, you know i think the jed lowry one was really interesting because all the stuff before I was like, if you come from this idea that the Mets aren't going to spend much more than the kind of 150 million or whatever that they've spent, then the Cano trade made a lot of sense. It was kind of cash neutral in the, in the short run. It did add money on the end, but it was cash neutral for the next two years. And uh, being able to add a bat like Rob Cano and a, and an outfielder and a, and a reliever like Edwin Diaz without spending any money really, uh, that made sense. But then, you know, signing Jed Lowry, that's actual money. And as a guy who loves Jed Lowry, he's super analytical, and I can talk about his benefits beyond, you know, play on the field. But as a guy who's watched him a lot, I don't think he's the backup shortstop. And I'm not even sure he has the arm for third. So that makes him a right side guy where you kind of have Cano and Alonzo. So there's a little bit of an, a weird fit there for me. Right. Yeah, no, and that that is, you know, we know the Mets. Something will happen, <laughs> you know. So, something will probably open up, but 
you know that I, that concern I think is is probably the most relevant one. Yeah, yeah. And you talked about you know you you have you written your you were writing a piece about um, about how their depth is is not because this, this they look like they care about depth. They definitely have multiple options at most infield positions other than shortstop, and they definitely have a lot of outfielders now. So, but but there is sort of like um, a paucity of depth. There's a, there's definitely some problems with the depth too. Did you write about that? Uh, yeah, it, in the process. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, not not that it's going to be like the, the the most epic thing anybody's ever read, but <laughs> right. But yeah, in the works. You know, there, there's other areas of the roster. Um, you know that yeah, that are definitely concerning. Jed, yeah, if you don't want Jed Lowry as a backup shortstop then you have to find place for Guillaume. Right. And if you have place for Guillaume, that means that I think Davis, you're picking one out of Davis, McNeil, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, you, you start to get into, you know, I mean, earlier this week, Van Wagenen said uh, on a TV spot that he was doing that McNeil's moving to the outfield full-time in his eyes. Oh. Um, so that, you know, that sort of changes things a little bit, but at the same time, we know, you know, that his professional experience is pretty much, uh, you know, in the infield and, you know, it doesn't what, always work out. We all remember Danny Murphy. <laughs> right. Right. But, but yeah, that, that might add a little bit of a layer to things, you know, if, if they really stick to that. You know, there's a long list of things that Mets GMs and managers have talked about in January and February that <laughs> that are gone by April, you know? But I suppose it might make the Broxton Lagares thing make more sense because then what you could do is uh play McNeil Nimo Conforto against righties. Yeah. And just be real quick if you get a lead, you know, to bring on Lagares or Broxton. And then have like kind of a defense forward outfield against lefties, where you've got Broxton and Lagares in there, and McNeil comes in as the first pinch hitter. So yeah, yeah that that could... know, if McNeil if McNeil could play center, that'd be amazing. But I guess they they believe in you know Nimmo and Conforto playing in the short term at least. Um, and if and if McNeil really is an outfielder, then a lot of this starts to make sense. I think that I guess it means probably that Davis ends up in the minor leagues because he has an option, and Guillaume is the uh, the infield sub. Right. Yeah. Somebody who can go out and play shortstop and and handle it at the major league level. You know, even even if the bat is still where it was last year. You know, he yeah. send him out there and not be embarrassed. Yeah, and you kind of and with Cano, and if you're going to play Lowry at third. Um, or Cano at first and Lowry at second, uh, and Frazier at third, you, with Guillaume you have the option to kind of put in a def- defensive replacement with the lead in the infield. Yeah. Yeah, and keep, keep, keep some, some uh, miles off of some of those legs. But, uh, I, you know, so if that works out, so McNeil goes to the outfield, that helps the outfield situation, maybe that gets Guillaume on, Davis is the first guy up if someone gets hurt, but you're still looking at Lowry at third. Um, I'm I'm willing I'm willing, I'm willing to watch it. I, I you know 
the one thing about Lowry that I think is, is really funny is that he is the slowest, fast-looking dude I've ever seen. <laughs> He's just, you look at him and you're like, why are you here? Like, dude is shortish, uh, not, doesn't look like he's a power threat. Uh, you just, you sort of be like, oh, you're David Eckstein. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he's not, uh, he's a really, really what he is, 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 is Ben Zobrist. Um, but Zobrist was faster and, and quicker and more agile. So he's kind of, you know, a little bit further down the, you know, the defensive spectrum than Zobrist, but he's really good at strike zone um uh strike zone so controlling the strike zone and you know if he could talk to rosario uh or talk to peter alonzo like you know he, as he did with matt chapman and and matt and matt olson in um oakland and he had a really big effect on matt chapman matt chapman took a real big step forward uh by talking to Lowry and he really cut his strikeout rate, added his walk rate, added his power, and really kind of went from a guy who was gonna be a glove first third baseman that might be okay to like a guy who looks like the next Eric Chavez. So um, you know, there's definitely uh some mentoring aspects there, but I think this might even be an amazing avenue joke, is it? Like veteran <laughs> veteran presence. Yes. Yeah, yeah that is <laughs> That's like a real old Amazing Avenue joke. I feel like. It is. It's still alive in the comments, though. Nice. Still going. So he's going to bring some presents. Some presents. <laughs> that is a that is a very good callback. Um, <laughs> and I know, uh, I, I don't want to say fan because that that's you know probably not exactly the right word, but he certainly has your respect. Um, yeah. you, you know, I, mean, I know he's, he's probably, a guy. Maybe the smartest person in the game that I've talked to, or at least one of the top three, and I totally think uh, he'll be in a front office. You know, the other other guys that I would put on this list that have retired are in front offices: Sam Fold, Dan Heron. Uh, that's what it's like to talk to Jeff Lowry. So, um, you know, Henry Heron's with the Diamondbacks, and Fold is with uh, oh, and Brandon McCarthy, who's actually an assistant GM with the Rangers. So, oh, I maybe I saw that, but it just didn't stick. But I think I just missed it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, like, it's a high, it's the highest role of the three. I mean, Heron is a, is sort of like a pitching consultant coordinator uh-huh. and old is a, is a, you know, a coordinator as well. So I forget exactly what his title is, but um, yeah, Brandon McCarthy jumped right into the, to the boardroom there. Nice. But, so, yeah. So I had, I respect Ed Lowry. The, you know, the, the, the questions I have are, can he play third base? And I guess, uh, can he pitch? <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah man um oh what was i gonna say uh, something with oh does lowry yeah uh, just because heron came up does he have the self-awareness where heron was willing to like make fun of himself publicly on social media especially late in his career uh you know when when certain things weren't going well it is he a guy who's got like i don't know that don't sense know. or he's just smart and good at baseball uh i don't know I mean, there's a there's a continuum. Heron is on one side, and Votto is on the other. Yeah, Votto is really smart, but, uh, you know, arrogant. Right. <laughs> I mean, he makes it really funny uh, because he's 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 smart and he he knows how to sort of play with it. But he's he's pretty arrogant. I mean, at one time I asked Joy Votto about play protection. He said, "Who would protect me, Babe Ruth?" <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, protection in the lineup. And I was like, well, right. all right. Then. <laughs> so uh, I would I would say that Lowry is maybe sort of in the middle there. I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily put him on any coal. So right, right, okay. So he's just he's a baseball player in, in that yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. Most of these guys are pretty arrogant. I mean, they're they they're playing in major leagues. You know, they made it this far. They they've been the best player on their teams for a very long time. Yes. And some of them continue to be that, you know. Even when the something it's not always warranted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so, uh I, you know, what, most of my conversations come with players who've had uh, you know, most of my best conversations come with players who've had to make a huge adjustment, who've had to who face adversity, um, and kind of have a, a more a more gentleness about them. Um and uh so Lowry did have that. I mean early in his career he was oft injured and uh, looking like a utility player. And uh, I think he just really buckled down and was like, I'm going to control the strike zone and just get the most power as I can out of, out of my, you know, out of my, the body I was given. Um, and uh, when he started really paying attention to that, uh, I think that's when he took off. Yeah. Hey, that, that, that makes sense. Also, yeah. septum surgery. <laughs> Oh yes, I've got a deviated septum, and they're talking about surgery. But yeah, he had septum surgery a couple years ago. So the last two years, if you're looking at his numbers, the last two years have been way better than almost anything he's ever done. And those are the two years where he's finally getting more than fifty percent sleep efficacy. Apparently, he was sleeping every night and just waking up feeling uh, like a turd. So, um, you know, if you're looking for an explanation of why his numbers took off, that could be part of it. Yeah, no, and, you know, it's sort of a, a common theme that makes for a nice segue into Wilson Ramos, you know, uh, similarly, not the same medical right. issue, but he goes and has LASIK, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, that's the guy who we were all excited about as a prospect. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's interesting because, um, you know, I saw some Mets folks at the winter meetings and people were talking about trading for Real Muto, and I was like, dude, like, come on, you're going to open up a hole somewhere? You know, you're going to trade Rosario? You're going to trade Syndergaard to get Real Muto? Like, that's a, none of this makes any sense. Just go out and sign Grandal, sign Ramos. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, they apparently were in on Grandal and uh, were one of the teams that were talking to them at maybe, you know, 4-50 and 50 or whatever. And Grandal didn't like the average annual value. And I think in some ways um, the Mets might have, I don't know. I mean, Grinnell is is a physical specimen, great framer, great power, um, would have been a great get, good age. Ramos is older. Um, he's going to be defensively limited. It's going to be there's going to be some problems back there, maybe, maybe some injuries. But at the same time, um, I've had pitchers tell me they don't really like throwing to Grinnell, and. Um, He's uh, he's created some issues, and it's not like the Mets clubhouse has been, you know, the most uh, cohesive in the past. Um, so maybe in some ways um, this will be a better fit. And in, in just in terms of like long term risk and and money outlay and stuff, like Ramos was was an easier deal for them. So um, I think at least for this coming year, the, the difference won't be as as huge as it might seem. Yeah, has uh, have any pitchers had anything to say about working with Ramos that you've talked to over the yeah. years? 
I've only mentioned the thing about Grandal because it's very rare for me to for someone to say that, you know, uh, even off the record to say that you know, they know it's going to percolate and they'll know that it'll show up on a podcast or whatever, you know, like right. They they know that they're saying something. So I've only the only other guy that I can think of that a person told me they didn't like throwing to was Derek Norris, and his pro- like that came up with other people, you know. Uh, and I, I think even that was even reported maybe, but definitely, uh, that was, those are the two names that, that I've, I think I've ever, ever heard someone say, you know, I don't like throwing it to them. Um, yeah. but you know, we've had a string of decent catchers in Oakland and then, you know, Buster, people go out of their way to tell me how much they love throwing to them and how Buster did this and Buster did that. So nice. <laughs> uh, that's that's a little bit more normal because the pitcher and the catcher have like a good relationship. If you if you're gonna tell a writer that you don't like throwing to someone, you're risking your your relationship with your catcher. So, right, yeah, yeah, no, and I, I Posey, I feel like gets you know somewhat underrated in this era of of catchers that have just been. I don't I don't want to knock everything that they all do. You know, some of them are really good framers or general defenders or whatever you know but we haven't had a lot of catchers who can hit for a while um and ramos has been one especially the last three years grandal has certainly been one in his career and uh you know posey has been by far the best and you know there's just this animosity over the rule change that resulted from his injury Mm -hmm. you know that and you know his home park suppresses his offense you might look at him and be like ah he's like a 280 hitter he hits 15 homers what's the big deal right um but i think one of the things that he does really well that isn't uh caught by the numbers so well is game calling um you know the 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 giants had a guy this guy Derek rodriguez came up and the dude had like five different pitches but none of them was that good and uh posey just you know, put the fingers down there and gave him confidence. And he started throwing the change up with confidence because Buster was calling for it. And, uh, he made the most out of his, his package. So I think that's, he's done a lot. He's done a lot of good for those young pitchers. Um, that's not, you know, necessarily going to happen for the Mets pitchers, but you know, the good thing is, um, you know, you get Ramos, he's a complete, he's a veteran. And I think the pitchers have done their growing. I mean, in terms of, you know, DeGrom, Syndergaard, Mats and Wheeler, uh, the, the reason I picked the Mets to maybe improve upon their numbers and stuff is that if those guys are healthy, they have made the breakthroughs. They understand their arsenals. They they could probably um, shake Ramos off and, and know what they're going to throw um, at this point. So it's really just about health. If they stay healthy, this team could go all the way. I mean, it's it's got two aces and two decent uh, pitchers behind those guys. It's got two aces in the bullpen. Uh, and I see enough, you know, bats. I love Michael Conforto, so uh, I'm a total stand. But if you know, <laughs> if Yo comes back late in the season, uh, and if Nimmo doesn't regress too hard, like you've got a you've got a full lineup. So it, it's I think it's really for this team is really about uh, starting pitcher health. I think that's the main thing. Yeah, yeah, and that that's what makes it feel risky. But um, you touched on a couple of guys there who. I wanted to ask you about, uh, well, I'll start with the West coast guy in Diaz, you know, for, I, I think for people who are into fantasy baseball, you're more likely to kind of 
get a better sense, even if you're not watching them on a nightly basis because of mm-hmm. the time difference. But you're maybe a little more likely to get a sense of guys who are out west if you're here on the East Coast. Um, but as somebody who's been awake for a higher percentage of his games, <laughs> you know, what's uh, what's your take? And, uh, you know, especially he's in the division, so, he, you know, he's playing the A's a lot. How nasty is this guy? Uh, he is, is terrifying. Uh, you know, they, they had these heat maps that came out about where they, where people get their whiffs and like, you know, Kimbrel gets his whiffs on high fastballs and low, low curve balls, you know, you know, Chapman, uh, gets his whiffs actually a lot in the, in the middle of the zone. Cause he just throws so hard. Um, Edwin Diaz gets whiffs from your nipples to your knees and <laughs> it's, it's a, like a combination of Chapman's fastball, and I would say a better breaking ball. Uh, maybe not quite Kimbrel breaking ball level, but a really, really good slider. I think it's better than Chapman's. Um, but he also has a little bit of that hair up his nose like uh, like Chapman does. Okay. Uh, where every once in a while, he's wild, um, and uh, that's where a guy gets on first. You know, someone makes contact and they score the one run they need to. But otherwise, you know, if you give them three runs, you can slam a door shut. Here is uh, the leader's minimum uh, 100 innings pitched. I mean, yeah, I can move that minimum. That's fine. Uh, minimum 100 innings pitched, but, you know, these guys have all pitched more than that. Uh, strikeout to walk, minus walk percentage. All-time leaders. Josh Hader, number one. Kenley Jansen, number two. Keg Krimble, number three. Edwin Diaz, number four. Aroldis Chapman, number five. Dylan Batances, number six. Um, so, you know, Billy Wags is, is 10th. So, uh, first starter is, if anybody wants to know, it's Chris Sale at 12th. But, um, you know, he belongs in that group. That's the kind of close that Edwin Diaz is. And, I, and as much as people were kind of, I think people in, in New York are a little bit down on Familia. Um, I don't know why. I, I guess he's blown some saves. He's maybe not exactly, the stuff isn't maybe exactly what it used to be, but in terms of a uh, combination of age and fastball velocity, um, I don't think there was another pitcher out there uh, that, uh, that had, had that package. He was younger than Kimbrell and had more fastball velocity than anybody else. So I, I don't think that was that bad of a, of a deal, personally. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. Um, you know, going back... It was, but yeah, 2014 was really when he, he really got his first shot. You know, I mean, he had been in the majors, um, but it just in limited capacities before that. And then, you know, he really came out, um, you know, over 75 appearances three years in a row. And then 17 is the combination of the, the suspension and, you know, the, uh, the, the blood clot issue. Yeah. And that's the only year that his walk rate was any bad. And with, he has one, maybe one of the best sinkers in the game. It might be the best sinker in the game. Like him and Blake Trinan probably have the best sinkers in the game. And so when you look at his home run rate, I told me his home run rate, it's minuscule, especially for the era that we live in. Right. So, you know, a guy that's not going to give up the home runs and probably when he's healthy is not going to give up the walks. And, you know, you know you, at least the strikeout for inning is there. It's not quite, you know, Diaz, 
but it's it's going to be awesome. I mean, it's going to be one of the best setup men uh, in baseball. So that's a good one-two punch. And then I think we've developed in, in Lugo and Zellman and all these guys. We've developed guys that can that can handle the the sixth and seventh and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Where it starts to get interesting is, you know, sort of that. It's like a two-layered thing between the bullpen and and the starting rotation. And, you know, I've I've had this thought since Mariano got in as the first 100%, you know, Hall of Famer. Um, I've had this thought that, man, why didn't that catch on sooner? And maybe it's because I was at a game that Mariano started and just got rocked, you know, and then he he converted to it and wound up Mm -hmm. being one of the – arguably the best uh, reliever in, in baseball history so far. Yeah. Um, hmm. But Were you, you saying you were at the game? Yeah, it was a game in like 95 when he was a starter where he wow. just... Yeah, and like there, I remember... There weren't a lot of those games. What's that? You, there weren't a lot of those games. No, no, there weren't. There, um, he made 10 starts in 95. Now I'm just... Uh, the time-honored tradition on this show perusing baseball reference while you listen to me talk <laughs> but now, now i need to look at the game log um because I, I might be able to pick out which game it was i don't think it was his debut i mean i guess it's possible that it was but you know he had in terms of games he started he he had a couple decent starts or, or really good ones even, but he had one, two, three, four, five, six, where he, he got shelled, you know, and then he made that switch. And obviously it's become trendy this decade. Um, I don't mean that in a bad way, but, you know, Wade Davis, Andrew Miller, you know, guys who were on a, uh, they, they spent a longer time trying to make it work as a starter before they, you know, made that switch over. Um, but it's just interesting to me that somebody who was so good after making that switch uh, didn't inspire that sort of a movement. And I know baseball, at least in the 90s going into the 2000s, might have been still kind of glacial in terms of progress. Yeah. I think I think you're kind of seeing some of his effect now. I mean, I think there is people are faster with it. If you look at trades, I think that uh, in terms of trade value, a prospect even like a Bobby, was it Bobby Wall? That guy that they got last year, four for a million? Yeah, and then they they included him in one of the trades this winter. But yeah. Right. Uh, so, you know, I think that, um, I think Bobby Wall went to Milwaukee for Broxton. I, I think that you might get more value in a trade for uh, a high-velocity, young, high-strikeout-rate reliever prospect, which didn't even exist. Like, the word relief prospect didn't exist before. I think you might be getting more for that player than you would for, like, Eric Swanson. I know he got included, you know, to Seattle in the Cano deal, but that sort of 4-5 starter where they throw 90, they have a couple pitches, you're just not sure. Because I think, A you already know the reliever is going to be valuable. And B, there's almost no floor on a guy like Eric Swanson. Like, yeah, he has a couple pitches, but let's say he doesn't work out and then he goes over to relief. What if he's only throwing 92, 93 in relief? Then he's not even a relief prospect. Um, so I, I think that, like, um, teams right now think that, and I think the Mets in particular, think that they can find a four or five, you know, four, five, six starters either in their 
uh, organization or, you know, on minor league deals and so on and so forth. And there's a, there's some names out there that, that might make sense for them on minor league deals. And it's harder to find an actual really good reliever. Um, so they'd rather have, I think we were, you know, they'd rather have a guy like Lugo or Giselman uh, succeed in re- in relief than, um, you know, kind of bounce around as their fourth to starter. You know, that's why they got Santiago for a couple mil. They're like, you know, he's going to be our, you know, long man starter guy. Yeah, and he's at least interesting in, in a sense that when he was a reliever last year, he was decent. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if that's a permanent thing that you can hang on to. I would say but he's, he's, he's easily their sixth starter. I mean, they, they're going to need him. He's going to be their sixth starter. I don't know if they'll let him, if if he'll let them stretch him out in the minor leagues because he'll probably want to be a major leaguer. Um, but maybe they'll do some like two, three inning stints as a reliever until they need him as a starter. Yeah. Try to keep him stretched out. But I mean, it, it, beyond Santiago, it gets pretty ugly. Like, I don't even know. Like, I try to keep up, and I have no 25-man rosters, 40-man rosters, a little bit harder. I don't know who Lockett is. And I know I know that Oswalt and Flexen, I saw some of them, and I was like, I don't see anything good here. And I know Colomi, Franklin Colomi or whatever, he's hurt. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, he, so, had, he had Tommy John. There's somebody named P. Conlon at the bottom. Oh yeah, he's the born in Ireland. Uh, oh really? Yeah, Irish. Pretty, yeah, I think he. I if I should know this better, but <laughs> pretty much was raised here. But yeah, born Irishman, born in Ireland. So that you know, he's he doesn't throw hard. He's a lefty. Um, you know, didn't go so well in his first you know taste in the major leagues, but you know, and I, I, maybe future Logie. Yeah, you never know. I mean, certainly a, a story to root for. You know, it's always yeah, right. fun when a guy comes from a place that isn't typically where a Major League Baseball player comes from. But yeah, Lockett, they got in the Ploiecki trade. Um, you know, unless one of them turns a major corner, Oswalt, Flexen, you know, we haven't seen anything from them that makes you go, oh yeah, that guy's going to be ready to, you know, step in and, and soak up you know yeah and teams teams need 10 10 starters on average and seven starters for bulk innings so uh that means one of those guys is going to actually pitch you know 50 to 100 innings in the major leagues this year yeah yeah and the the, the, the slightly more intriguing names that are out there that you know Peterson K um you know, whether it's because of where they were drafted or what they've done in the minors, those guys, the Bucky, you know, you're talking about guys who are farther away. Right. Well, you know, and then there's the minor league invites, which I think they'll probably take advantage of. I mean, they don't have a lot of, uh, they don't have a lot of money left, but in a minor league invite, uh, you can sign a pretty slick split contract that won't cost that much. So Drew Pomerantz just went to the Giants for $1.5 million. Yep. Uh, that's the kind of deal they might still have left in them. So I think Martin Perez went to the Twins, uh, which leaves guys like Irvin Santana, Doug Fister. I actually kind of like Nate Carnes. He's never healthy, but he has great stuff when he is healthy. And he, if he comes back and they don't need him as a starter, he can be a great reliever. Uh, but then there's, um, 
you know, Jason Hamill's, you know, has decent stuff. He's 36, though. So there's a bunch of guys, older guys. Bartolo Colon, come on. <laughs> hey, come sign me on. up. He's still out there, right? Yeah, yeah. He And after starting last season pretty strong, he, he um, you know, he struggled. But he is said to be, you know, still seeking a deal. Um Can you believe it? He's thrown 300 innings in the last two seasons. It's he's crazy. 45. And he yeah. throws one pitch. <laughs> like, well, okay. He threw fastballs like 80% of the time. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, and, and like when you look at, uh, you know, 2016, uh, I know it was just the wild card game and Bumgarner shut him down. And, uh, you know, going back to Familia, I think that game was disproportionate in what. Uh, the perception was unfamiliar. You know, he mm. he had the bad inning in that game uh, after yeah. Syndergaard was flawless, if slightly inefficient with pitch count. You know, where, right. whereas you know Bumgarner goes the distance. Um, yeah, yeah. We're all we all we all have that recency bias. It happens, um, but I think if you look at his career as a full season as a full thing it's you know for me it's good right oh yeah i yeah, know and i if anything i have been on the side of guys who have maybe not been 100 percent their best every single moment in the playoffs but you know the mets don't get there in 2016 without bartolo you know dude yeah. through 191 and two-thirds innings a 343 era you know that's not leading the league or anything but that was a very valuable season they had out of him yeah you know, it's gonna it's gonna depend on what they really need is to sign a veteran who they can convince to stay in the minor leagues. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know? major league roster spots are gonna come at a premium. Uh, but maybe like uh, you sign Marco Estrada, put him on the DL for his back, and play the phantom DL game with him. Um, you know, Estrada. Not a lot of people in the NL have been have been trying to face Estrada, and he has very unique stuff. So, you know, something like that could really work uh, where he just comes in and, you know, no one's seen his change up in the National League for a little bit. And I know there's ongoing uh, interleague play, but, right, you know, it's still still you still see guys in your division more often. So Estrada, I think Estrada as a DL stash or something would be fun. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's at least a name who, you know, he does some things that you can buy into. Yeah. Maybe get you through four innings. Um, and then see what the bullpen can do. I'd rather do that than bullpen games because it's not like the bullpen's super deep either. So if you're going to do bullpen games with the Mets, like you're going to start running out of relievers in the next game pretty easily. Yeah. Yeah, I think bullpen depth, starting pitching depth and bullpen depth are the two things that concern me the most. And I, I guess a little bit of catcher too. You know, the infield in terms of the four positions that are uh, in fair territory at the start of every pitch mm-hmm. you know that there's plenty of ways to configure that you know whether it's alonzo mm-hmm. being included or not you know that you can spread guys around and maybe just totally sacrifice defense at one position but or two but <laughs> mm-hmm. you know you, you can see a way that makes that work the outfield i'm still concerned about you know maybe McNeil being a full-timer out there might lessen that concern if he shows he can play in the outfield. But catcher gets me a little bit too 
Um, you know, Ramos has been not, you know, he hasn't been Darno. Darno is like the. Yeah, but he had he had knee surgery. Or was it ACL? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, and he's he's uh, he's thirty one. So you know, him going on the DL for a long time is not is is possible. And then Travis Darno is coming off of a surgery, right? Yeah, he's coming off Tommy John. Yeah. So that that's Tommy what John. it is for me is that you know one and two together sound like hey that that that's good, but. Right. You know, but then one gets hurt, and then two doesn't come back until July, and all of a sudden, Nito is your Nido. Uh, Nito, yeah, Nito is your starter, and who knows is half behind him. Right. Yeah. So yeah, let's just hope Ramos stays healthy. <laughs> <laughs> There's um, some hope and praying going on here, definitely. Yeah, well, it is the Mets, but. Right. Yeah, so I guess they did did pay more attention to depth than they have in the past. I mean, at least they've got. I think what they have is depth in terms of offense. Yes, like sometimes a player shows up and just has a bad year offensively, and so I think they're inured a little bit. If Peter Alonso comes up and struggles, they don't have to just play him all year, right? They can send him back down, and Frazier can play first. you know, there's, there's, I think with Broxton and Lagares, there's a little bit of like, one of you guys show up with a bat this year and you're going to play more than the other guy. Yeah. Right? Um, so, yeah, I think there's a little bit of like, and right now, the, the, they don't even, I kind of expected them to like, uh, you know, if Yo comes back, then, you know, then this, this whole thing, um, you know, works a lot better. So I, I think that they did do some depth in the lineup, but they didn't, there's not a lot of depth at key positions, shortstop, catcher, starting pitcher, reliever. Uh, I will say one thing. There's not a lot of teams that have a lot of depth at starting pitcher. <laughs> yeah. I and mean, the Red Sox last year did pretty good in terms of acquiring depth over the course of the season. Uh, but I don't think they went into the season with that much starting pitcher depth. And the Brewers um, just were amazing at putting together starting pitch. The only team that I can think of when I, when I think of starting pitching depth is someone like the Dodgers who have just used their massive amount of money and uh, all their roster spots and their DL spots to, to kind of play the game, play the depth game really well. So I, I don't think that this is a, a, a problem that is unique to the Mets. Yeah, no, that that's fair. And a lot of times it's hard, you know, when you focus so much on one team, it's hard to take that step back and see what else is out there and what other organizations are dealing with. But you know, when you you look at the total package, you said earlier, if these starting pitchers stay healthy, you know, you could see this team being a contender like any other. Um, you know, do you have a realistic spot that you you expect them to end up at? You know, are the projections just right on them? Do you, do you think they'll go a little higher than that, lower? Well, I'm a little bit worried for the Mets that Harper may return to the Nationals. Right. Uh, I think that'd be my main guess because right now Nationals are projected on, on projected on Fangraphs for 92 wins, Mets for 85, and I would say that you know a 75th percentile outcome for the Mets this year would have them you know tied with the Nationals in the last week, you know, um, just going for the division. Uh, that's 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 totally possible. And the way that 
team win projections work, you know, five wins is one standard deviation, uh, 10 wins is two. So one standard deviation from 85 is 90. Nationals could, you know, come back off theirs a little bit. They're right with everything. You add a Harper to that, you'd probably push the Nationals win projection, you know, 93, 94, 95 makes it a little bit harder. And then the, the Mets' uh, good outcome is uh, first, you know, in the first wild card hunt. So uh, that's what I'll say. I'll say that they'll be in the hunt for the wild card. Okay. I think it's a, a decent place to be. The like 90th percentile outcome is all four starting pitchers stay healthy and pitch to their, you know, their best abilities. Uh, you know, McNeil is a competent outfielder. Rosario takes a step forward with his uh, plate discipline. Uh, Peter Alonso just plays to his projections, which are, are decent. Um, and the veterans, the veteran bats stay healthy and Yo comes back. Like, I don't know why that team couldn't win at all. I mean, I'm talking 99th percentile because I just listed a lot of things that have to go right. <laughs> but I, I don't see why that team doesn't because it, you have big boppers, you have aces, you have a good bullpen. So at least this team has a 99th percentile that is is up there with any of them. But, uh, you know, like 50th, the 50th percentile is obviously good enough for the wild card. It's going to be 85 wins for the Mets, Cardinals 86 wins, um, and Braves 82 wins. That's 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 the grouping right now for the wild card. Yeah. Yeah, so, hey, no, it's that's that's a decent place to be. You're 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 in the mix. Uh right now projected to be the second wild card, but you know, it's a win between them and the Cardinals. And the, and I think that the uh in their I think the National League East will be pretty good this year, but Miami always gives you a soft landing where you can get a bunch of wins. I don't see that same thing in the Central. The Central is a dogfight. Those yeah. guys are going to lose a lot of games to each other. So that helps the Mets into a wild card because, you know, the the winner of the Central might win it with 90 or 88 or 89 because they're going to be playing really good teams. The Cardinals just got a lot better. The Pirates are not a bad team, and the Brewers have magic, you know, devil dust. Um, when it comes to starters, at least. So, you know, what's the what's he, the Brewers are projected to be the worst team in the in the uh, in the division by projections. So, you know, that's going to be that's going to be a tight uh, a tight uh, division, and they're gonna they're gonna lose some games. And then the 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 National League West, I think, will just be an absolute like the Dodgers are just gonna blow everyone out of the water and win a, like a hundred and five. Um, and I don't, I don't even know if another wild card comes out there. So I really do think it'll come down to like Cardinals and Mets, and that'll be fine. I think it'll be, I think it'll be a good fun year. Hey, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's better than not doing anything. And people want to say they didn't spend, but they did spend a little bit, and they did do some stuff. I mean, yeah, they didn't add Mar- Harper or Machado, but as long as the Wilpons are owners, and as long as they're still trying to dig their way out of whatever Madoff situation they're in. Uh, I don't think that the Mets are going to spend much more than $150 million. So, you know, this this was a, a good offseason, I think, for them. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, that's fair. As, you know, as much as we would like the reality to be a little bit different, yeah. you know, operating with the, within those constraints, they've done some good things, you know. So yeah. we, can, we can compliment Van Wagenen and also – be frustrated with the Wilpons at the same time. So, 
Yeah, Machado would have been a nice signing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, and that, that would have... the numbers they're talking about, like, not even that expensive. I think the one was, like, 10, 180 or something. Like, come on! Yeah, no, it's the stuff that's been out about that has just been... It's been crazy. I'm hoping the final numbers are, like, more legit. I mean, 10, 180, like, every team. God, the Pirates should be in on that. What yeah. Is, put Machado at short for the Pirates, and they have money. They're not even... They, they've, they're at, like, 75 million or something, and their normal payroll was 90 million. Like, they... They could go put Machado at short, and then all of a sudden that team looks like a real team. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I know Heyman mentioned today that the Padres had checked in on the big two and a couple other guys. They're spending a little bit more than they have in the past, though. I mean, it's the real the teams that have the most money, the Twins, the Rays, and the Pirates. And the Twins were in on Grandal, so they're, they are trying to spend their money a little bit. Uh, the Rays, you never know. Some days they just don't spend any money. But they were rumored, the Rays were rumored to be trying to get Edwin uh, Encarnacion from Seattle. Uh, so I think the Rays do have another move in them. And then the Pirates are just sitting there, just being quiet. Nobody hears anything about them. Uh, you know, I think they're the mystery team. Hey, that would at least be fun. Yeah. Beautiful ballpark. Make the Archer deal make a little more sense. <laughs> yeah, that too. That's right. <laughs> that was weird. Yeah, it was. Well... <laughs> On that note, uh, you can find Eno at The Athletic. That's right. And you can find him on Twitter at Eno Saris, S-A-R-R-I-S. Um, can people find you anywhere else? I know they'll see you on TV on the MLB Network from time to time. Uh, any Anything yeah. else that I'm missing? Uh, I shut down beer graphs. I had a beer website for a while. It was fun. Yeah. Um, but now I'm just drinking beer for fun, not for for a career. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, mostly Twitter, um, uh, and, uh, going to start a podcast soon on, on, uh, the athletics. So, uh, people who enjoyed my podcast in the past, that'll be back and, uh, got a couple stories coming up in the next couple of weeks that are, got me really excited. So if anybody's on the fence, like you, you can wait for the stories if you want, but I have these two stories that are nothing like what I've done in the past really. And one of them, uh, whenever I, I can't say it now, but when I've told a couple of people about what I'm working on, they've been insanely jealous because it's uh, it's just a totally interesting topic that no one's ever heard of. So um, I'm really excited for these next couple of stories, and I hope uh, people the coverage enjoy our coverage over at the Athletic. We've got Ken Rosenthal and Jason Stark, Goats, and um, and then locally uh, Tim Britton is great, and then just uh, if you like any other teams, like we've probably got your favorite writer for those teams. So. Um, you know, I, I I really advocate for it. I think it's really fun to have great national and local coverage. It's not something that people have done really well in the past. So that's what I, I hope we're going to do differently. Um, and it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Chris. Uh, last time, I think uh, we were supposed to try and hook up in, uh, around Jeff Tweedy in the rain. Yes. Uh, but uh, that didn't work out. But next time I'm in town, we will share uh, a beer. Uh, and it was fun to share this podcast with you. Yeah, man. Likewise. And in, in some cases, The Athletic has some of the uh, some of our favorite former writers who covered our teams in Mark Gregg. Right. <laughs> yes. yeah. But yeah, no, uh, we're, we're, we're all certainly uh, happy for all your success, you know, in the business. Uh, I forgot to mention Fangraphs, which was obviously a significant home of yours, mm-hmm. um, you know, 
after Amazing Avenue of Fangraphs for a long time and, and then everything you've got going on now. But, you know, it's the it's it's good to see good people getting to it, the, that kind of spot um, and having that kind of audience in baseball. So, And Amazing Avenue is always in my heart. So, uh, And let's do this again uh, sometime maybe late in the season and see how wrong we were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we can get, if there's a time, maybe we'll get a time that Jaffe's around and you're yeah. in New York and we can do it all with beer in front of us. That'd be great. Yeah, let's try it. All right, man. Thanks. So joining us now on the podcast, uh, you're familiar with him. He hosted this show for quite an extensive uh, period of time before moving on to Baseball Prospectus, where he is now, uh, you know, helping to run the show and put together the famous, infamous uh, Top 101 Depends list. on who you're talking to. Yes. Uh, but coming fresh off having published that today as we record, uh, Jeff Paternostro is back on the show to talk about the list. So, Jeff, thanks for coming back on. I'm always excited to do my part to annoy Mets Twitter about not liking Mets prospects enough. So <laughs> That is the name of the game. Um, but I guess let's just start with the two who made it onto the 101 this year. Uh, you know, they're familiar names to people who follow Mets prospects. Uh, shortstop Andres Jimenez and first baseman Peter Alonzo. Uh, I guess we'll we'll start with Alonzo. You know, he's a little bit closer to the majors in terms of where he is, uh, in you know, in the minor league ranks with his experience. Uh, and he came in at number 40 on the prospectus list. So, you know, that seems pretty good. I know first base prospects have not always been necessarily your favorite, but what, uh, you know, what put him up there uh, rather than, say, farther down the list? So he is the only first base prospect that made our 101, like functionally playing first base now. Like you can certainly argue that Vladimir Guerrero is a first base prospect. Um, you know, some other guys might end up there as well. Ryan Mountcastle, Alex Kirillov have that risk to varying degrees. Um, but as far as pure first base, pure cold corner prospects go, uh, Alonzo is the only one that made it. Evan White of the Mariners was the next closest. He was in our, in our just missed 10 pack that went up. So the reason that we tend not to love first base prospects is first base prospects need to hit a lot. Uh, you know, an 800 OPS is pretty much the baseline here for, you know, regular you're not constantly looking to upgrade from. You know, think like the better Lucas Duda seasons, and the Mets were still always trying to look for a way to upgrade from Lucas Duda. Now, Alonzo also has two other things working against him. He's a right-right first baseman, so he's not going to have the platoon advantage as much as, say, Lucas Duda. We'll just continue to use as sort of the, the baseline average first baseman or slightly above template that's both accurate and familiar to your listeners. Uh, and he's not a very good defensive first baseman. He might, in fact, be worse defensively than Lucas Duda. <laughs> um, so he will have to hit a whole heck of a lot to be an average regular. But boy... You know, you asked me why he ended up as high as he did. A lot of that is the constant buzzing in my ear of one Jarrett Seidler, who went on even higher than this. 
you know, on a personal prep list, I'd probably have him more in like the 60s. Does that mean a lot? Functionally, all it means is I think there's a little bit like lower floor here, lower likely outcome. I mean, I get it. I get the the potential Reese Hoskins outcome here, where it's just he sees major league pitching well enough and breaking stuff especially well enough that he just is able to do so much damage when he makes contact. You know, even he's still going to run a high K rate, I think, probably like in the upper 20s, or maybe even close to 30. Not that we care about that as much nowadays, um, sort of the shape of how baseball performance has gone in general, even with the good players. That it's, you know, 260 and 35 home runs, which is basically the good Lucas Duda season. Uh, you know, he'll get on base a fair amount. He might be a little bit better than that. He might have seasons where he makes enough hard contact where he hits 280. Um, it's He's improved a lot year over year, which is a good marker as well, I should point out. Uh, you know, I saw him in Brooklyn. I'm like, oh, they're going to completely have to rebuild this guy's swing. And they more or less did. Um, you know, that's usually a negative marker for prospects, but sometimes the swing changes work. Um, as I'm sure a long-time listener of this show hmm. will uh, remember with regards to Brandon Nemo. I may have said some things about that uh, <laughs> on the pod at various times. And they really worked for Alonzo. He's shorter to the ball now, but still just incredibly strong. I mean, sort of the classic moment. You look at the home run he hit in the Futures game off of Donis Medina that I think I described at Baseball Perspectives going by way of the International Space Station. Uh, the home run he hit off Nate Pearson in the Arizona Fall League that was like 103 that he turned. Uh, those are not like normal stiff slugger first base type things. Um, yeah, he's even like, I'm going to use the phrase sneaky athletic, which is kind of damning with faint praise. Uh, he's a bad defender, not because he's not rangy. It's more like his hands and footwork aren't great. Um which is a problem for your first baseman. But, you know, he's like, that. He's, it's not like a stiff, lumbering kind of swing. He's not fast, um, and there's some length to get to the power. But those are all things that come with, you know, your slugging corner prospects. And part of it baked in is, like, he's basically major league ready. So that, as much as we value, or we tend to get told that we value upside more than the consensus. I don't know if that's always true. But Alonzo does have the fact that he's like majorly ready. He's proved it in the upper minors. He has nothing left to prove in Binghamton or Syracuse, and he's could be the opening day first baseman. He's not going to be for service time reasons, but I think that gives him a little bit of an advantage over many guys behind him that, you know, still have stuff to prove in the minors. Right. And uh, if you're making that prediction, do you think he's just an extra year of control guy before he gets the call up or a super two guy? I think he's probably just an extra year of control guy. You can always sell, like, to anyone. He, and he's not a 40-man guy, though, so functionally it's only, like, a week and a half. I think it's, like, 10 days. Okay. Um, so you don't have to take the, give him down for the full, like, I think it's, like, 21 or something if they're already on the 40-man. So it's really only, like, two weeks. You know, that's fine. Um, how he looks in spring is going to dictate it to a certain extent. I never want to bet against the Mets valuing that super two year and trying to keep him down towards June. If Todd Frazier is playing first base every day and gets off to like a, you know, 10 for 25 start with a couple of home runs. Will they try to do that? They might, it's the Mets, but um, you know, he's functionally, he would have been ready for a September cup of coffee. I think you, uh, 
you keep him down for the two weeks and then you assuming everything's looked fine and he's healthy you hand him the first base job and the thing is like if it goes bad you can option him and move Todd Frazier there that's one of the things that's nice about the position player depth that they've uh, acquired over the offseason yeah yeah no it's uh we've talked about it a little bit already you know on this episode and recent ones uh, that that's become the area of the team that has sort of the most comfort going into the season. I don't know if there's another one, but yeah, don't talk about the bullpen, <laughs> right? But there's there's that one, so I guess that's nice. <laughs> and and sticking in the infield, uh, Jimenez. You know, you guys had him as the Mets' top prospect on the team list coming off of last season um, and going into this one. You know, this is a guy who's playing shortstop. He's still very young. He's, what was he, 20 last year? I think year? he just turned 20. It was okay. his age 19 season. I think he's a – I used to know these things by heart. I think he's like a November or December birthday, so I think he just turned 20. Okay. So, yeah. So the Mets' top prospect, I don't know where everybody else had him off the top of my head, but either Alonzo or he would be presumably at the top of any list uh, based on the team. I forget where we have him. I should probably know that. <laughs> but, you know, he's he's a shortstop. We have Ahmed Rosario trying to, you know, turn the corner from decent, you know, passable major leaguer into something better. Uh, is Jimenez the kind of guy who might leapfrog him in a year or two? Is it is it that high of a ceiling? Uh, or should the expectations be a little bit different than that? Uh, it's certainly possible. I don't even know if I want to cage it in fact that the ceiling's higher. Because I don't think the ceiling is higher uh, with Jimenez as compared to Rosario. I think it's more just he's a sure shot shortstop. He's he's polished. He's very precocious for his age. You know, he's more likely to come up and be an average regular right away. Like with Rosario, I always kind of suspected there was going to be somewhat of a learning curve, which is why I was. Uh, Kvetching that he wasn't up sooner, so you could try to get that uh, adjustment period over earlier than it ended up happening. And obviously, we're still in it, really, even going into to 2019. And those things do happen. Um, you know, prospect development into major league development is not always linear, and not everybody's you know Ronald Acuna or Juan Soto. Uh, you mentioned either Jimenez or Alonso could be one, two on most lists. They could be one, two on this list. They're both, you know, we both wrote them as 60, 55, you know, low risk, high probability above average regulars. And then it's just really a matter of timing. And as it worked out, you know, Jimenez didn't kill double a, his performance was good. What I saw in the field from him at the end of the season was good. Everything was good. But he's not a guy that you need to rush. You can give uh, Rosario the full year to try to make some more adjustments. Um, Maybe Jimenez forces the issue and you have your quote-unquote good problem to have. But I suspect he'll probably start back in Binghamton for a couple months and then go to Syracuse. You could start him in Syracuse and keep him from there for the whole year. Um, I wouldn't have particular qualms one way or the other. I have no strong feelings. Another thing where it it kind of depends on how he shows up in spring and what he looks like. And you make your evaluations there on uh, how much you want to challenge him. But, you know, now all of a sudden you'll have two plus years of Rosario in the majors. And then you like at that point, you're talking about like 1,000, 1,500 major league plate appearances. You got to start making a decision. 
on Rosario. And he's really going to be the person that sets what happens next more than Jimenez, I think. Um, you know, if it's another year of the bad Alcides Escobar, you know, maybe you start looking to, you know, move him, try him in center field. Um, you know, maybe explore the trade market. Maybe it's just like you're in win now mode and you've got to go with the guy that gives you the best chance to win. And it might be the dude that's, uh, you know, at that point only 20. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, you know, it's, it's, I guess, kind of ironic to have one of the two prospects who has a shot at making the major sometime soon be at a position where there's somebody, you know, relatively similar just in age uh, and sharing the same position. But, you know, if, hey, maybe they both turn out to be really good and that'd be a nice problem to have. Although that never seems to be how it pans out. <laughs> um, and the Mets just find the shortstop version of Jay Bruce to block both of them anyway, usually. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, one guy who was in the Mets system until uh, this offseason who, who's on the list is uh, Jared Kalenic. And he is at, what was it, 64? Six, 63. 63. I guess you remember this off the top of my head. It'll be gone in two days. But <laughs> uh, I know at the time that he was dealt away, um, I think I would say you were tempering expectations on what he was, and uh, what I saw on Twitter. Um, you know, how afraid of losing him should Mets fans actually be at this point? I mean, he's was a top ten pick. He was pretty much consensus top ten talent. Uh, in the draft. He performed well in short season afterwards, and we ranked him as probably, I think he was the sixth highest draft pick on our list. He's like the sixth or seventh highest draft pick on our list, and he was the sixth overall pick. So, you know, it's, I don't think there's anything, I don't think we were particularly out of step in any direction one way or the other on him. Um, is it possible that ranking looks low in a year? Yeah, it's possible. A lot of the new draftee rankings look low in a year. I tend to be more conservative with draftees that don't have a long professional track record. I saw him this year, um, and I liked what I saw. I liked I liked the glove and center. I liked the raw power. He looked like a guy that was running on fumes, but I saw him in August after a, after a long amateur and then professional season, and these post-draft years can be a little you know, tricky to evaluate. That said, you know, I saw him the same week I saw Wander Franco, who we ranked at 10th overall prospect in baseball, and I'm comfortable with the gap there. Like, they gave up a very good prospect to get uh, Robinson Cano and Edwin Diaz, but, you know, if you were just trading for Edwin Diaz, you'd have to go, I think, a more significant prospect package. Um, And they got Robinson Cano, who's still an above-average second baseman. I think it's... Like anything else, the idea, I think this comes out from the Alderson era too. Uh, It was something that Sandy himself sort of, I think, uh, highly valued. The idea that you have to win every trade. Right. You have to, to, you know, everything's got to be Dickey for Syndergaard and Darno. Or Marlon Bird for Dilson Herrera and Vic Black, which didn't even really work out in the end. Anyway, um, I guess we turned Dilson Herrera into (laughs) Jay Bruce and. Yeah, that one felt nice for like a solid year. That you know, it did. It felt really good. Yeah, but like the idea that you have to win it on like the trade day. No, it's it's a trade that 
I think, helped both teams. It's a fair deal that improved the Mets for 2019 and 2020, which seems to be their goal, which is a reasonable goal to try to win baseball games in the near future. It's a goal that many teams are not particularly concerned with right now, and the Mets seem to be. Um, and they gave up, you know, two prospects, like definitely prospects. You know, Dunn wasn't a wasn't a one-on-one guy for us. He'd be in the next 75 or so. I don't know exactly where. Um, you know, if you th- if you think more, if you think he's a starter, if you're more confident he's a starter than I am, you could get him into the back end of the one-on-one, and this trade would still be fine. Like it's just. They did not give up, you know, a Wander Franco level prospect. Not that they really had one to give up, <laughs> but you know, it's it's great. He's a, he's a good prospect. It's weird because they had just drafted him. Uh, you know, obviously the Trey Turner rule makes that okay now. So it's like it's it is kind of difficult to parse because you don't have a feel for what he is yet as a pro. So there's almost like more unknown unknowns there. And if they traded, you know, if they traded. Andreas Jimenez for him instead. Like, I would consider that a more significant piece to give up. But I can tell you exactly sort of like what the likely range of outcomes there is with more precision than I can. Jared Klenick. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I mean, to to your point uh, a minute ago, you know, the concept that trying to win games is like something that you could kind of feast upon since so many teams aren't particularly interested. I mean, I, I wish the Mets were trying harder. <laughs> you know, there's more they could do. But, you know, it, if they're saying and at least approaching it like they want to win and not lose, you know, 95 to 100, I guess, you know, that's uh, there are worse places to be as a fan. Um, and then as we look just a little farther down the road, uh, two guys you had mentioned have a shot at being on the 101 in the not too distant future, uh, Ronnie Mauricio, mm-hmm. shortstop, uh, and Shervian Newton. Uh, so maybe you want to enlighten us. Mauricio, I think, is probably a more familiar name. Um, you know, he's he's kind of been on the radar, I think, for a little bit longer. But uh, what you know, what are those two guys about, and you know, what might their futures hold? Yeah, so I wrote I wrote Newton for sort of the next year's 101 10-pack, just because he's more interesting to write about than Mauricio is. And I fully expect Mauricio, just on attrition, based on how we sort of graded him out or he would have ranked this year, to make it, you know, barring injury or severe underperformance uh, in 2019. You know, but they're actually an interesting study in contrast, because Mauricio was, you know, obviously their, their top IFA signing from 2017. They gave him a lot of money. And he came over to the GCL and performed very well for a 17-year-old. Um, I think the line I used in the in the 10 pack was, "I'd write about him, but I just don't want to write like I don't want to see like well, we're going to run back the Wilmer Flores prospect pop profile again with a little more athleticism." <laughs> That's kind of what you're looking at here. If you enjoyed the Miguel Cabrera comps for 17-year-old Wilmer Flores in 2007 or whatever it was, yes, um, you will. Uh, I don't. I think we've all learned our lesson about comedy people to Miguel Carrera, but it's that kind of like yeah, he's probably going to grow off shortstop, grow into more power, and then we'll see how it goes. He is a little more athletic than Flores. Um, somehow less likely to play shortstop in the majors than Wilmer Flores because 
God bless the 2015 Mets that went to the World Series and started every World Series game with Wilmer Flores at shortstop. Yeah. That is a thing that happened recently. <laughs> uh, Newton, on the other hand, is Dutch. He got $50,000. Um, there was, From my understanding, is there some sense in the organization that the position player thing, if it didn't work out, they try him as a pitcher because the arm's really strong. It's like a plus-plus arm. Uh, which usually translates to the mound, and he's built. He's actually like built like a very projectable pitcher. He's like six four, high waist. Everything's very lean. Um, and the funny thing is, he's a really good shortstop. Like instinctual, makes plus shortstop plays. Huge human being. Nineteen. Don't know what he's going to look like in four years. Don't know if he can play shortstop long term. But like you just assume it's like ah, they're playing him at shortstop because. Everybody plays shortstop when they're a teenager. They give him reps or whatever. But he's actually, you know, a very passable shortstop at present. Um, but you're not really here for the glove. That's going to be a nice bonus. And he ends up at third. I think he'll be quite good there. Um, it's it's the bat. It's extreme raw power. It's extreme athleticism. Um, the swing's nice. The approach isn't as bad as the as the K rate in the Appy League would suggest. I think he's just raw, uh, given his background. I suspect they'll send him to Columbia, and I think there's going to be an adjustment period. It might not look great early. It might not look great for the whole season. That was sort of be the point where it gets me. T- it's tougher for me to justify him, you know, as a one-on-one guy. But it could click too. Uh, you know, O'Neill Cruz, the Pirates prospect, who's also still playing shortstop despite being like three inches taller and 40 pounds heavier than Newton, at the same age, could be the model here. Where despite the long levers, like he's just a good enough hitter and a good enough like baseball player to you know combat the difficult hitting environment of the Sally League as sort of his first taste of full season ball. Uh, I think there's going to have to be patience there, but he's a guy where you could get like some serious... You could argue that he has the most upside of any player in the system. I'll put it that way. All right. That, that's, a, that's a nice little tagline to throw on him, I think. <laughs> um, so yeah, that... You know, the, those are the guys who are on the radar um, in terms of the list. And, you know, when you look at it, just uh, it, I guess if we kind of just a quick recap of where the rest of the division is, uh, I think there are eight Braves on the list, right? A lot of Braves still somehow. <laughs> uh, and then three each for the Phillies and Nationals and two for the Marlins. So, yeah. Uh, I'm coming back to the same type of question. How scared should Mets fans be (laughs) of those various systems? You know, which, which ones are more likely to impact the major leagues sooner? uh, And, and which ones are more likely to impact it the most? The answer might be the same, I guess, but. So I, I don't think you should ever be scared of another team's farm system per se. You know, I like to say that, you know, uh, our org, there's no pennant for winning our org rankings in any given year. What I think the difference here is, especially for the Braves, would be the thing that would concern me for them. If you look at, I think, what their one weakness right now is kind of like they're mostly pulling the major league. Like We're going to write up five major league third starters out there like the Brewers did last year. Now, Fulton Emich was better than that this year, last year. Uh, the health track record and durability track record and performance track record would I don't know if he can repeat that. He might sometimes it just clicks for guys and he was always a a very good prospect. So sometimes those dudes finally just get healthy and right and you get, you know, like second half Zach Wheeler. It's I think it's a sort of a very similar thing 
uh, for Fulty, not quite to that level, but he also did it for the whole season. You know, past that, it's like Sean Newcomb, you know, it's Kevin Gosman, again, another guy that was a very good prospect, probably in the wrong system because the Orioles tend to screw those guys up. But you could see that, you know, they're still going to roll out there 180 innings of Julio Tehran. But if things start to go wrong, if Fulton Emmons gets hurt again, if Tehran's really bad, they have just endless numbers of arms to, like, throw at the problem. You know, they can throw Kyle Wright at it. Mike Soroka's healthy, they can throw him at. You know, Ian Anderson might be ready by the second half, and I think he has the most upside of any of them. Two keys, basically, major league ready. One or more of those guys are going to work. And it's, you know, that kind of starting pitching depth, something the Mets extremely don't have. It's, you know, Hector Santiago and Kyle Dowdy. I think with as many durability questions in their starting rotation. So that would concern me. The Nats farm system, really the only thing you have to be worried about is like just Victor Robles coming up and being a monster like they did with Juan Soto and like they don't miss Bryce Harper at all. Um, with the Phillies, you know, Sixto is a big name there. I don't I don't see the way with the way the Phillies develop their pitchers with Sixto and Medina necessarily having an impact this year, maybe late season in the bullpen. But Sixo is absolutely a guy that could headline a trade for an impact piece uh, if it's close at the deadline, and the Mets may not have that guy because Alonzo might be or should be in the majors by then. Uh, and Jimenez, like, for whatever reason, he's not ranked that far behind Sixto on our list. I just don't. It's a tougher sell for a team. Andres Jimenez leading a package. He'll bring back something nice. And if Rosario establishes himself this year, it might be a, a move they look to make because the, there's really not a spot for him in the infield past uh past rosario now taking right. that spot so that is it's not something i wouldn't be worried i wouldn't be worried about the marlins at all to be clear uh, mm -hmm. uh but like yeah it's these teams all have you know pieces they got make an impact they have places they can fill holes i think to a greater degree than the mets um but honestly you know as a mets fan my biggest concern is you can they didn't Nice little job getting more position player depth in the offseason. I think Vegas has them in the over-under at like 84 and a half wins. I like the over there. Not enough to throw a lot of money on it. I see them as like an 86-win team that's fairly high variance with the starting pitching. Um, you know, tomorrow morning we can wake up and the Nats have signed Harper and the Phillies have signed Machado, and all of a sudden, right. you know, it doesn't matter <laughs> what these farm systems look like. The Major League roster is just not competitive. That would be my concern more than the endless parade of brave starting pitching prospects. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that is totally fair. Uh, so on that note, congrats on publishing the list. I know I it's... I uh, try to leave you guys on the most optimistic note possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's appreciated. Um, I know, uh, yeah, there, there's there's more optimism, I think than there has been in the last I, I probably mo the most of any off season uh despite that desire to have more since we came off of 2015 so i guess that feels nice <laughs> but yeah it, it's we, i we know the list is a you know it's something you guys put a lot of time and effort into um obviously for listeners who who somehow don't know already just go to baseball prospectus you can find the list there uh if you subscribe you can see you know all of the things that uh jeff and Jarrett and and company uh you know have written about these guys and 
yeah, hopefully, hopefully your optimistic note at the end is, uh, you know, something we can hang on to for a little bit longer this time around. Sounds good. Hey everybody, this is Steve Saipa, and a lot has happened since our little podcast mini-break for the new year started. On January 5th, the Mets traded Bobby Wall, Adam Hill, and Felix Valerio to the Brewers, and they got back Kian Broxton. And then a day later on the 6th, they traded Ross Adolph, Luis Santana, and Scott Manea to the Astros in exchange for J.D. Davis and Cody Bohannock. And they also traded Kevin Ploiecki to the Cleveland Indians, and got back Walker Lockett and Sim Haggerty in an exchange. So there's a lot to digest there. Uh, the biggest thing to me is that it messed up our top 25 prospect list. Uh, the Kalenic and Dunn trade, we already had our list, but we didn't publish it yet. So it was easy to take them out of it. No big deal. We already started our list. We began it on January 1st. New year, new list. I like to do that. And our Bobby Wall profile was already published, and I already finished writing the Ross Adolph and Louis Santana ones, so it was pretty annoying that they were traded before those could run, and I ran it by Lucas and Kenny, and they both agreed that we should just keep the list as it was, because most other places, you know, they run their lists all at once. I like to shut those out, because I take pride in being, you know, the most informative of all the national and local Mets prospect sites, but... Sometimes that bites me in the ass, and this is one of those times. But anyway, tangent aside, so when the team trades minor leaguers, generally I'm kind of eh about it. Um, These are guys that in some cases I researched, I wrote about when they were first drafted, I followed them as they started climbing up the minor league ladder, and you know, you kind of grow attached to a degree. The thing is though, if it's a good move, it's a good move. When the Mets traded Michael Fulmer and Luis Sessa for Joanna Cespedes, I had no problem with that. The Mets at that time were kind of tre- were they were kind of, you know, just treading water. Cespedes was an All Star and he was a player that the Mets really needed. And lo and behold, look what he did in the second half of 2015. The title Clipper trade that sent Casey Meisner Oakland. Little less of a fan of that because I like Meisner, but Clipper did help the bullpen that year. Um, the Juan Uribe and Kelly Johnson trade that said John Gant and Rob Whalen to the Braves. Also not the big of a fan because I didn't really think that the bench needed that much enough of an upgrade, but they did both prove very useful. And it's not like I'm losing sleep about it now. Addison Reed trade, it sent Matt Koch and Miller Diaz to Arizona. Great trade. You know, Reed was a great buy-low guy and neither Matt Koch or Miller Diaz are really ever going to be anything. So I'm not the kind of person where I'm automatically against a trade that involves a prospect or a farmhand or whatever. But I don't see the point in these moves. The Mets right now are what, an 80-81 win team? You know, they won 77 games last year. Um, They traded some dead weight, added Robinson Cano and Edwin Diaz. I think that's enough to say they're solidly a 500 team if nothing goes horribly wrong. But not a single guy that the Mets got is a difference maker. Um, I mean, really, not a single guy they got is really even a solidly reliable 
role player or situational guy, kind of like Aribe and Johnson were a couple of years ago. And what annoys me even more about this is that the guys that they traded for, they could just easily have signed similar players for relatively basic contracts. Um, Broxton is kind of redundant with Juan Lagares on the roster. And, you know, since they have similar strengths and weaknesses, Broxton having a little more power and speed, but Lagares being the better center fielder and both of them basically having trouble hitting the ball. But the only thing that they gave up for him is Robbie Wall. And personally, I think that the likelihood of Wall producing major league value as a reliever is, you know, higher than the likelihood that Broxton does that as a kind of fifth outfielder guy. J.D. Davis, um, he's got legit power, no doubt, but the bat is not good. I hear people saying, well, he hit three forty two in the PCL last year. Okay, great. 56 guys with enough at-bats to qualify in the PCL leaderboard hit over three hundred. You know, judging a player on his PCL batting line is not good process, you guys. The mechanics of his swing are stiff, and there's holes in there, and his swing is is kind of slow. He has slider bat speed, as they say, and it's not a good combination. But I was just quickly scrolling through... Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I was just quickly scrolling through the list of available free agents over the winter, and, you know, Danny Valencia, almost the same kind of player as Davis. He has a little less power, but a much better hit tool. And he has the ability to hit, play third and a little outfield like Davis. But he's still available. And he's not going to cost much. Derek Dietrich, same thing. He's still a free agent. He's not going to cost much. And they literally could have brought Wilmer Flores back. Uh, the Plawecki trade now, to me, it's more weird process than missing him as a player on the Mets. I mean, he wasn't exactly great, but he wasn't terrible either. And he really didn't bring back much. And that's what I think is disappointing about the trade uh walker lockett he isn't exactly an exciting prospect he's like 20 to 30 or so i guess in the discussion but the mets gave up more for jd davis an unproven minor leaguer with some pretty serious flaws than they got back trading plawecki who is an established player who you know he's not great but he can hold his own since the bar is really low for catchers I get that there probably wasn't much of a market for him, but still, if you're gonna give up, if you're gonna give him up for pennies on the dollar, you know what? Don't do it in January. Wait until spring training. Wait until the season is around the corner and it's and it's almost April. You know, stuff happens just like that. Poof, a team could have their primary catcher, their backup catcher go down, and suddenly they're scrambling for a catcher. I'm not saying that Plawecki would have gotten back a king's ransom, but you know what? A player that's a tiny bit better than Lockett and Haggerty is a tiny bit better. Um, you know, Lockett is pretty much what he is, and Haggerty is more or less a non-factor. So maybe a team that's more desperate to fill that sudden catching need is willing to part with a more exciting player. I'm not saying they're going to give up the number one prospect. Obviously, they're not. But, you know, uh, a kind of lotto ticket player or you know, a change of seniorly, change of coaching kind of player with with possible upside. Unlikely to realize it, but it's there. Those those are kind of exciting guys, and Lockett and Haggerty don't exactly fit that description. Uh, all in all, I think what I don't like about these trades, though, is that mm, they just don't feel 
like they were made with... Oh my god, I keep yawning. Very unprofessional. They don't feel like they were made with good organizational depth management in mind, if that makes sense. Um, The players that were acquired helped the Mets, and they make them better, sure. But similar players could have been signed as free agents for relatively nothing. And they would have moved the needle just as much as these guys. You know, the Mets gave up assets for relatively pennies on the dollar, which is problem A. And then they gave them up for an assortment of players that aren't going to get them over the hump, which is problem B. The addition of these couple of guys, even if you think that they're going to outperform expectations, even if you think Keon Broxton is going to become suddenly, you know, Willie Mays and... Um, J.D. Davis is going to become the next Albert Pujols. All right, maybe if they became Willie Mays and Albert Pujols in his prime, in both of their primes, that could change the needle. But if you think that both of these guys are going to outperform expectations, which are very low, that's still not going to turn the Mets into a playoff team. Maybe they'll be an 85-86 win team instead of an 81-82 win team. That doesn't help anybody so hopefully uh Bernie and Wagner got that out of system now and going forward we're not going to see any weird moves for the sake of seeing moves which is what those trades feel like and hopefully we don't have anybody who is going to be on our top 25 prospect list that hasn't been published yet <laughs> be traded because that'll make me feel even worse but on that note next week I'm going to start some 2019 top prospect list coverage and discussion. So again, hopefully nobody gets traded in between now and then. Hello, Mason Avenue listeners. Allison McCake here to bring you a special off-season edition of the Nimometer and the Degrometer. Um, During the season, I brought you a weekly segment, (laughs) semi-weekly, not every week, but most weeks. Um, I brought you a um, segment where I gave you the latest updates on um, Brandon Nimmo and Jacob deGrom as far as how their seasons were going, some of the most exciting, two of the most exciting players that the Mets had in 2018. Um, And now I am here to bring you the um, off-season updates on both players. Um, so Brandon Nimmo's major off-season update is that he and his wife Chelsea got a dog around Thanksgiving. Um, his dog is named Jake. He insists it's not after Jacob deGrom, but I'm going to choose to believe that it is. (laughs) Um, and he is a little terrier mix and he is absolutely adorable. Um, he has an Instagram, which is the most important thing, obviously. Um, the Instagram account on that is Jake underscore the underscore snake underscore nyc um he's called jake the snake because his tongue is always out and it's really adorable um he's always sticking his little tongue out um and you can often find him cuddling with brandon or being wrapped up in brandon's coat while he is out um so obviously major nimmo update he got a dog most important um because we are very friendly to pets here on amazing avenue um 
minor other Nimmo updates. Nimmo is also, um, you probably know that Nimmo is also Santa Claus for the holidays this year. The Mets have someone dress up as Santa every year, and Nimmo was the Santa this year. Um, so he's aiming to break the uh, Mets Santa curse, whereby the player that is Santa Claus is always injured the next year. So hopefully this doesn't mean that something uh, bad is in Nimmo's future. Um he and Chelsea also braved Times Square on New Year's Eve, which is wild to me. Uh, Brandon seems to really enjoy the New York touristy things. He was in Times Square for New Year's Eve, and he was also at the Macy's Day uh, parade for uh, during Thanksgiving. So um, those are two things that, bless him, I would never do. But he seems to be having fun because he's always having fun because he's Brandon Nimmo. Um, so those are your Brandon Nimmo updates, mostly social media related. Got a dog, went to Times Square on New Year's Eve, Santa for Christmas, living his typical happy-go-lucky Nimmo life. Seems to be living it up. Um, meanwhile, Jacob deGrom has less of a social media presence, so I have no, you know, pet updates or any sort of memes to report on. However, we do have a few substantial updates as far as um, Jacob deGrom on the field and his, and where his salary stands for 2019 and beyond. Um, so last week, uh, the Mets and deGrom avoided arbitration and settled at $17 million for his 2019 salary. Um, his raise from $7.4 million in 2018 to $17 million is the largest raise for any arbitration-eligible player. Um, which is a big deal. Um, obviously, he deserved it, though. Um, given his Cy Young award-winning campaign last season, that's not at all surprising that he got such a large raise. Although, notably, it was a couple million dollars higher um, than projections from places like MLB Trade Rumors. Thought he would get a little bit lower than that, something in the thirteen to $15 million range. Um, but, you know, um, certain reports called it, you know, something like an extension of goodwill on the part of the Mets, um, hinting that an extension might be coming still. Um, so, and it, it was reported that, um, for DeGrom and the Mets, an extension remains a priority. Um, so hopefully that's something that's gonna still get done, um, we have received reports on what a sourced estimate um, looks like for DeGrom extension at this stage, which seems to be in the five years, $130 to $145 million range, um, and that both sides still want to get a deal done, although we haven't heard anything close to um, a breakthrough on that yet. But that number is notable. Um, some people have kind of, you know, complained that from an average annual value perspective, it is not a substantial hometown discount. Um, it's comparable to what players like Clayton Kershaw, for example, or Zach Greinke are making per year um, up there with the top um, paid pitchers in baseball. But you know what? He deserves it. He deserves every penny of it. Pay the man, is what I say. And I am not a proponent of caring about the Wilpons money or that DeGrom off would offer them not a hometown discount. I don't really care all that much about that. I want them to get it done almost no matter what. Um, and it's a perfectly fair price for him to offer considering he has won the Cy Young Award and is one of the best pitchers in baseball. He deserves to get paid as such. Um, and I don't see why DeGrom would particularly offer the Mets a super steep discount, considering he's been wanting to extend for years now, and the Mets have, you know, 
been dragging their feet on that and not offered him an extension, so why should he let them out easy at this stage when he is already a superstar player now and could easily get close to $200 million on on the market if he were a free agent today? So, you know what? Just pay the man. Um, Brody Van Wagenen, um, as DeGrom's former agent, has recused himself from any negotiations involving DeGrom, obviously because of conflict of interest issues, although, you know, the role that Brody Van Wagenen has taken on changing from player agent to um, general manager is somewhat unprecedented, um, and how much he can truly recuse himself from these matters is anyone's guess at this point. Um, we know that Brody Van Wagenen, as DeGrom's former agent, has probably at least known some sort of ballpark estimate of what DeGrom would extend for for quite a while now. Um, so, you know, I'm not panicking yet regarding a DeGrom extension that it hasn't gotten done. Often these things happen late into January or, you know, February and March even. Um, so there's plenty of time to get it done. Um, but, you know, as as a team that is in a unique position that has the general manager recused or not as the form as the player's former agent. Um, a lot of these smaller details have probably been known for quite a while. So it does make me slightly concerned, but I wouldn't say that I'm panicking yet. Um, it seems that the Mets are, you know, not really after the Jed Lowry signing being the last, probably the last major signing the Mets are going to make barring anyone, anyone's market completely crashing. Um, the DeGrom extension is really the last major thing they need to do this offseason. And I still feel fairly confident, maybe call me naive, but I feel fairly confident that it's going to get done one way or another. Um, so those are your um, important Brandon Nimmo and DeGrom updates. Um, side note, as far as if you're if you are a person that was unaware of Jake the Snake's Instagram page and wants to know things about other Mets uh, players' pet Instagram pages, another one I highly recommend is Michael Conforto's dog Griffy, Griffy the Good Boy. Um, he is also a new Mets pet addition to the Mets family. Um, he is an adorable um, red lab. Um, and he is a puppy and cute, and the Instagram is adorable. So I think that the Instagram is Griffy the Good Boy Thirty, um, and so I highly recommend following that Instagram as well. Jake the Snake NYC, Griffy the Good Boy Thirty, dogs everywhere. Jacob Degrom extension. That is your nemometer and Degrometer off season update. Um, hopefully, I'll be back in your feed soon with an, another positive update. Maybe Degrom's extension will have gotten done, and Jake the Snake will have done something else adorable. So, um, happy New Year, belatedly, to all of you Mets fans out there, and I'll be back in your feeds again soon. folks that does it for another installment of amazing avenue audio thank you so much for joining us we really appreciate it we have a new email address finally aa audio podcast at gmail.com again that's aa audio podcast at gmail.com please send us email we'd love to hear from you you can also go to amazingavenue.com and read all sorts of wonderful articles from our contributors 
Right now, we're uh, detailing our top 25 prospects of the offseason. Mets prospects, I should say. And so please do check that out. You can also find Amazing Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. You can get this show from Blog Talk Radio, from Apple Podcasts, from Stitcher, from your podcatcher of choice. Please rate, review, and subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow a whole slew of us on Twitter. I am at Brian Needs a Nap. Chris is at Chris McShane. Eno is at Eno Saris. Jeff is at Jeff Paternostro. Steve is at Steve Saipa. And Allison is at Petite PhD. So we're getting pretty close to spring training. It should be pretty fun to see the last couple moves the Mets make. Hopefully they get a relief pitcher, maybe even a starting pitcher for some depth. But we'll see, and whatever it is, we'll be here to talk about it next time on Amazing Avenue Audio. And so, until next time, let's go Mets.